You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. Our text today opens uh, with a direct address to bond servants or, more literally, slaves. In the first century, households included three relationships, husbands and wives, children and parents, and slaves and masters. And that may surprise us because I'm guessing no one has this third set of relationships in their home today. And whenever we hear the word slavery in America, there's a certain historical background that we have because of our own nation's history. And so before we can really even move on to talk about this passage, we have to understand what Paul was addressing and and the type of person he was addressing back in the first century. Because the slavery then uh, had some things that were in common with the slavery in America a couple centuries ago, but slavery also had some differences, and it's important for us to note the similarities and differences. Slavery in America, I'm going to assume for time's sake that you are familiar with, it was a moral abomination, racially motivated, and entire economies depended on the exploitation of people. Slavery in the first century had some differences. It was not racially based on the color of the slave's skin. There were slaves from basically every people group in the ancient world. Some certainly were forced into slavery as prisoners of war, for example. But many folks actually voluntarily sold themselves into slavery because they couldn't live on their own. If you didn't own land at that point in time, it was very difficult to make a living and to survive. And so some people voluntarily sold themselves into slavery. Slavery in America was almost exclusively hard labor. And there were just, it was just a terrible situation. And there was certainly some of that in the ancient world. The salt mines were notorious for uh, having uh, hard labor for the slaves. There was also a variety of roles that slaves could have, including being trusted household managers. Think of Joseph in the Old Testament. That would have been an example of a slave who had a position of of trust. They were also tutors for children, and they had a variety of roles. And one commentator pointed out that freedom then was not viewed the same as it is today. Now, we're Americans. Freedom is part of our DNA, isn't it? And scripturally, sometimes that becomes a problem because we think that we're owed freedom. And sometimes freedom isn't necessarily a good thing. You say, how in the world could that be? Well, again, in this time period, if a slave was freed, they might not be able to make a living. They might not have the protection of having a steady income and food on the table. Uh, they may be forced to beg. And, and it really ended up being a very difficult situation. In fact, sometimes freed slaves would go back to their masters and say, can I just work for you? And there would be an arrangement there where they would be employed by their former owners. Now, (laughs) I don't want us to get the picture that slavery wasn't a big deal or that it was a rosy thing. Oh, yeah, I think I'm just going to go be a slave today. It was still a terrible thing. Uh, Slaves in the ancient world had no rights and were considered the property of their master. They were totally under control of another person, and purchasing their freedom was expensive and difficult to do. It was part of the social fabric of the day. I mean, so much so that it was just part of the household. And slaves, as you can imagine, brought financial gain to their masters. And though many slaves were mistreated, some Roman philosophers, like Seneca, for instance, advocated for the humane treatment of slaves, which you really weren't seeing much in America on that line until abolition became a reality. So how does the New Testament deal with slavery? How does it deal with this part of society? And perhaps to the surprise of some, it doesn't attack slavery head on. And there are a number of reasons why that might be. I'm going to give you a couple here, and if you're unsatisfied that, we can talk more after. The New Testament certainly does not endorse it, and it does not encourage it. But what it does is it, is it tries to lay out instructions for people within how the culture worked. 
In other words, they were trying, the, the, the Bible is providing guidance for how to live within this institution in a way that honors the Lord Jesus. Yet Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7 that, that slaves should be content in their situation, yet at the same time, if they have the opportunity to take advantage of their freedom and be free, they should do that. So instead of a frontal assault on this institution of slavery, the New Testament teaching does two things. First, it actually elevates slaves in a radical, countercultural way. And we'll see that in this passage. Because in the gospel, distinctions between the free class and the slave class are abolished. If you look back at Colossians 3, verse 11, Paul is saying that in the new man, in Jesus, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free. And to read that publicly in the Roman world would have raised some eyebrows. What you mean coming to Jesus means that the distinction between slaves and their owners is taken away. And then perhaps there may have been some people offended as the letter to the Colossians was read and bond servants are addressed on the same level as their owners. They are Christians with Christian duties and Christian responsibilities. And the whole slave-master relationship now is oriented around Jesus, who made himself a slave and now is, as we will see, the ultimate master. And so this may seem normal to us or, or, or non-controversial, but what, what's written here would have been very controversial in the ancient world. But then secondly, the logic or the teaching that the New Testament lays out really undermines this institution. And if you follow this logic out, follow the biblical reasoning out to the full extent, it really leads to one conclusion, and that is slavery is morally wrong, that owning another human being is sin. It's wrong. That's why in the English-speaking world, all the great abolitionists like William Wilberforce were committed Christians because there was a grounding, a foundation for their pushback and for their reforms. And so this is probably a sermon for another time. Wherever we find slavery in our world today because they're, they're, it's there, it does take place. Wherever we find it in our world today, we as Christians have a moral obligation to oppose it and to rescue people from it. Christians should be leading the charge against human trafficking and exploitation. And those words are not words you hear a lot in church, but that happens in our world. It happens a lot in other parts of our world. And the gospel is what gives us the motivation to say, no, these are image bearers that Jesus died to save, and we ought to elevate them from, the, from a, being property of someone else and invest in them the dignity that Scripture gives to them. The gospel of Jesus motivates us to help people be free, and yet we can look at this passage from a little different angle in this idea of slavery, because the gospel reminds us that earthly freedom is not the ultimate dream either. You say, wait a minute, how so? Every person is an image bearer of God, but every person is marred by sin, and so every person is under spiritual bondage. We are slaves to sin. So how do we get free spiritually? It's through the power of the gospel. It's through Jesus. Ultimate spiritual, ultimate freedom is spiritual, and that is found in Jesus alone. Because this passage, remember how I said it's radical and countercultural? It's also countercultural in this sense. Those who are earthly slaves can be spiritually free. And that's a far better arrangement than many people in our world today who are physically free and have rights as citizens, but they're slaves to sin. If you have never received Jesus as your Savior, the Bible says you are in spiritual bondage. Uh, John eight thirty four. Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Sin controls you. It is your master. And it treats you far worse 
than any slave owner in history ever has. If you're in sin that, and, and, and you're not come, you haven't come to faith in Jesus, that means that you are far worse than the slaves that were hearing this instruction in Colossae for the first time. Though they were totally under the control of their masters, they were liberated from sin and they had the hope of eternal life. Now you may be able to go where you want, do what you please, live how you choose, but the Bible says that you are not free. You're not free. You are under the control of sin. And so the gospel calls to you and says, repent of your sin and trust Christ as your savior. And then you will be spiritually free. And this freedom gives you a peace that passes all understanding. So there's a a lot that we could say about spiritual freedom and deliverance. And I hope that we've at least settled a little bit in our minds what this idea of slavery is. Because if we look at our culture today, I am guessing that, that being a slave or being a slave owner is probably not present in our congregation. So how do we take this situation of slavery and apply it to our world today? And we do that by principle. And the, the truths and the principles found here, I think, best apply to our work spheres. Because we work, we are under authority, and it's not the same degree. We're not the property of our boss. We do not own people if we are uh, in management. But there are truths and principles here that, that apply to our work. And the question I want to raise today is this. How should Christians behave in the workplace? And in the flow of Colossians, if we are treasuring Christ and we've been redeemed by him and we're living out our faith in Jesus, how then do we as people who treasure Christ work What is our work ethic? How do we apply ourselves in the place that we clock in and clock out? And this sermon uh, really affects all of us that that work, and that's probably most of us in the room. Those of you who are saying, I'm retired, well, you did work for a long period of time, and if retirement holds true, you're probably more busy now than you were previously. (laughs) I got an amen on that one. Just the way it works. So these principles apply to us. And this passage has four commands that give us four guiding principles. The first one is in verse 22. Let's look at it together. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. So the first command here to those of us who are in the workforce is this. Obey your masters completely. Obey your authorities completely. And this word obey uh, in verse 22 is the same word, if you look back at verse 20, that's written to children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Servants, obey your masters in all things. And what Paul does here in this opening phrase, your masters according to the flesh, that's kind of a clunky way to put it, but what he's doing is showing us the limits of human authority. Our earthly authorities are not the ultimate authority. They are human masters. As one translation says, obey those who are your masters on earth. That means that we have a greater authority in heaven, the Lord Jesus. And we're going to see that more clearly as we go. But we cannot be too quick to say, well, my ultimate authority is Jesus so I can disregard everybody else. We have to wrestle with what this verse says because there's some really convicting things here. So as we obey our authorities completely, we have to note that obedience is comprehensive. Obey in all things. Not just the things that make you more money, not just the things you enjoy or with the people you like, in all things. As long as it doesn't violate scripture, Christian workers should be the most responsible, most dependable, most obedient workers in the company. And that really uh, attacks our pride and our, uh, our uh, autonomy. Wow, I cannot pronounce that word. Autonomy. The ability for us to control ourselves and call our own shots. I'm my own man. I'm my own person. Well, when you go clock in and someone's your boss, you're not your own person anymore. It's just the way it works. If you want to work for yourself, you get to work for yourself, and then you realize that you're still not the boss the customer is. So as you work, 
No one likes being told what to do, and, and not every task will be enjoyable, and there may be some things that you don't like to do, but it's just part of your job. And as Christians, we are not called to whine and complain and manipulate and try to get out from the things that we don't enjoy. We have to do it as unto the Lord. When I was uh, in high school, I worked at a place in our little small town of Pelham, New Hampshire, uh, at a place called Beaver Valley Farm, and they, they sold animal food, they did like horse feed, so there was a lot of hay and things that flared up my allergies big time. And they had horses there, and it was kind of like this odd, eclectic mix of gardening and, and animal. And we did wholesale deliveries and that sort of thing. Well, there were certain jobs that everybody wanted to do. Like we knew which customers came in every couple of weeks to get their daily or, or monthly uh, uh, food for their horses. And it was always a ton of bags, but they would always tip. That hand you a nice 10 or a 20. Well, which job did everybody want? Everybody in the, all eight of us on shift would see their truck coming and we kind of slowly start moving toward it. <laughs> hey, can you go get me that thing way at the back of the property so I can go do this? Well, there was another job there in the horse barn. And horses don't tip in cash. And when that job was on the to-do list, all of a sudden, there, it was like no one else was around. Well, as a Christian, we had to trust the Lord. I had to trust the Lord enough to say, you know what, I'm getting paid for my work. I'd like the tip, sure, sure, I'd like the tip. But if this is what my boss is calling me to do, I, I really do have to do it. I didn't like doing it. It wasn't fun. And uh, I probably didn't have a great attitude about it. I'm, I can't remember. I just remember doing it. But you know what? The boss saw that, and he was, he was glad about it because I was supposed to obey my authority, my boss, in all things. Obedience is comprehensive. But the rest of this verse, 22, starts stepping on our toes because it, it calls for consistent effort. Obedience isn't something that we just get to do when we feel like it. And here's how Paul qualifies it. He says, obedience is not working only when we're watched. The verse says, not with eye service, and that, that's actually a really good translation, with work that looks around for who is watching me, and then I do it. Eye service is working only when the boss is watching. Now, every March, there's the greatest tournament in the world, and it's called March Madness. Okay? And you can go to the March Madness website like this, and, and in a few months, it'll have this giant watch now button right in the middle, and you can watch all these games and that sort of thing. But what do you notice up there on the top right part of the screen? Right up here. There's a little thing called the boss button. I will not ask for a show of hands who has used this. But you know what the boss button does? You can click it, and it makes it appear that you're doing work because a screen back in the mid-thousands would come up like this. You click the boss button and all of a sudden there's a spreadsheet. And if you notice closely, everything on the left side, the first number is all the teams in it. And then all of them are different statistics. But if the boss were to walk by your office and look through the glass window, they would see this on your screen and not this. And then they upgraded it to, to do this about 10 years ago. So it was like a PowerPoint presentation. And again, if you just do a quick glance, it doesn't look like anything bad. If you read it closely, it's all about, uh, uh, it's just really snarky the whole way through. It's kind of fun. The one that's for this year, 2023, 2024, is looking like uh, the GPT, which is the AI technology. So you pull it up and, oh, okay, that's what it looks like, the chat G GPT. Should Christians be utilizing something like this? If we obey this passage and we're working, not just when the boss is watching, then that, that's off limits for us. Because that, that right there, to me, is the ultimate definition of eye service. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch a game when I'm clocked in and should be working, but as soon as my boss comes around who's the authority, I'm going to pretend like I'm working and deceive my authority. If your boss walks in the door and you immediately change what you're doing, you're guilty of this. 
you're working with eye service. The second thing, as you can see there on the screen, is not working hard to gain favor. And this is the idea of as people pleasers or men pleasers, obedience is not working hard to impress people or make certain people like us. Do you struggle with being a people pleaser? Do you do things to try to, to gain favor from other people and make certain people like us? And, and honestly, if you live that way, it's exhausting. And it's very self-focused. Because people pleasers are consumed with what other people think of me. You know what the Bible calls this? The Bible calls this the fear of man. And Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoso puts his trust in the Lord will be safe. People-pleasing obedience picks and chooses when to work hard. It's like when you're telling a story and you lie about it. Now you have to remember who I lied to previously. And then when you tell the story again and and you rehearse what was supposedly true, you have to make sure that you don't spin the web so extreme that people start catching the inconsistencies. People-pleasing is the same way. Well, if I work hard for this person and this person notices it, then I have to work hard for them. So I, I, I have to work hard enough now to make sure that they don't see me, but then when they clock out at four o'clock, then I can work hard for an hour to produce res- It just, it gets real convoluted. It's not honoring to the Lord either. God doesn't want our effort and our attitude to fluctuate based on who's looking over our shoulder. Instead of fearing man, Christians are called in this verse to obey with sincerity of heart, fearing God. It's literally what the verse says. So we don't work only when watched. We don't work hard to gain favor, but we do work with single-minded purpose. That's that idea of sincerity. There's not a a hidden motive or a a duplicity, like I'm going to work, but I'm really kind of doing something over here for my own gain. Christians have integrity in their work. That's what this is driving toward. What is integrity? It's a a wholeness. It's a completeness. Integrity means we are the same way around every person in every situation. There's not shadows of our character or heart. Uh, One of our our, uh, mentors at the Wilds, Kate and I, said that, that people of integrity give the same effort on their job the first week as the last week. And in a summer where... You're running around chasing campers. Gabe knows this. He did it all summer. Where you're chasing campers for 10 weeks in a row, you're tired by the end of it. But people of integrity try to give as much of their effort in weeks 8, 9, and 10 when they're exhausted as they do when they're super excited in weeks 1 and 2. Christians who are full of integrity will give the same effort at all times. And you know what integrity does? Is it builds trust. Because people can count on you and depend on you. Because they know that you're gonna produce consistent results. They know that you're gonna show up day after day. Because people of integrity are trustworthy people. The believer who is sincere in heart will be trustworthy. And the last little phrase of verse 22, fearing God, gives us the reason why we work with integrity. Because we're not fearing man, we're fearing God. Our obedience is not driven by fear of consequences, or a pride of fame or notice, we work out of reverence for God. And what's really fascinating is that when we work hard for the Lord out of reverence to God, all of a sudden the things that we maybe set our hearts on, like promotions or bonuses or or added responsibility, all of a sudden those things start to come our way. Doesn't guarantee them, okay? Don't walk out of here saying, my pastor said that if I just work hard, I'm gonna get promoted in six months. That is not what I'm saying. But if you set your heart on gaining things, you will sacrifice your commitments to the Lord to get something that that goes away. But if instead you focus on what God has called you to do, again like Joseph, what happens? The Bible says that excellence is honored. Uh, Proverbs 22, 29, do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. So obeying means working with consistent effort, not for the approval of men, but with integrity of heart for the approval of God. 
I, I mentioned camp a minute ago. There are just so many examples that I could draw about this. And one of the, a couple of the summers, Kate and I were serving as lead counselors. So we didn't have campers in our cabin. We kind of were responsible for all the other counselors. There are 22 to 25 counselors on a team. So it was a full-time job plus some. Now, one of the things that we told our counselors to do is during free time in the afternoon, they were there to serve their campers. They were not there to enjoy all the amenities of camp and do whatever they felt like doing for 10 weeks in a row. So, if your camper wanted to go as a senior high guy, if he wanted to go to the craft shop and paint a sword, what should the counselor be doing? He should be in the craft shop with all the JBCers, you know, the fourth graders, sitting with his high school guy who wanted to paint the sword. Now, I don't know which areas the ladies did this, but the guys really struggled with the basketball courts. There was like, it, it was like a light and all the mosquitoes were just kind of gravitating toward it. And there were many times over the, the weeks that I would just be walking around, meeting campers, talking to people, and I'd walk onto the, to, to near the basketball court and I'd just start counting. And I think one time there were eight counselors playing a basketball game, an operational staff member, and one camper. That is like the cardinal sin in camp. And I just kind of stood there at this point, and I just started looking around. And what was really funny is you get a couple of the more astute counselors. What did they do? They started shrinking into the background. All of a sudden, there were like seven people playing basketball. Like, where would those guys go? <laughs> they saw the authority, and they said, ah, i got to get out of here. A couple of them were dumb enough to say, oh, hey, you want to play with us? Hey, brother, where's your camper? And, you know, there's that one counselor that's like, he's mine, ha ha, I'm good. You're like, all right, you're fine. But all of a sudden, these guys would scatter. Now, what happens is when I would be walking around, if a counselor was with two of his campers or a camper, what did they do when they saw me? Did they go running? No, they would say, hey, come meet my camper. There was no fear in their heart that they had been caught doing something wrong because they had nothing to fear. And when we as Christians work hard as for the Lord with single-minded purpose and reverence for God, we don't have anything to fear in our workplace. When the boss comes walking down the hall doing the routine check, you don't have to scurry like a cockroach. You can engage like a person and say, hey, how's it going? Because there's nothing to hide. It's integrity that brings us into the light. Those who do right, have no reason to fear authority. And that's what the scriptures are calling us to do, to have wholeness of heart in our obedience. That's the first principle. Principle number two builds on obedience and goes one step further. Not only do we obey completely, we actually now have to put our hearts into our work. This is what verses 23 and the first part of 24 says. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Principle number two is this. Put your heart into your work. And immediately, there are people I'm sure saying, but you don't know my line of work. Well, let's, let's see what the scriptures say. The main command here is do it heartily. And the word do is not the simple action of just do something. It's the word energeo, which we get the word energy from. It involves labor that, in, that, that has exertion and effort into it. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, it's used of workers in a vineyard cultivating the soil. It takes hard work. And we do it heartily. Some translations say enthusiastically. Maybe that's what's in your Bible. And, and that word enthusiastically is kind of right, but it has the idea of almost like chipper, cheery. The, the expression is literally from the soul, from the soul. We work from the innermost part of our being. And you can actually do that if you're not having a happy day. You can do that heartily to the Lord. Our work is not half-hearted. The complete Jewish Bible, which is a Messianic Jewish translation, says, whatever work you do, put yourself into it. Put yourself into it. And this calls to mind Ecclesiastes 9.10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Let, no Christ, let it be said of no Christian that their heart 
wasn't in their work. And we engage our hearts in our work for a few reasons. We engage regardless of what work you are engaged in. Again, the calling is comprehensive in whatever you do. Whatever you do, work heartily. Work with energy and give your effort to every task and job. And there's this idea in our culture where if I don't like my work, I can kind of just half-heartedly do it and just kind of get by until I find something else I do enjoy. Now, that, there may be a legitimate place for that. If you hate going to work, maybe you ought not to do that. Uh, if I was not a pastor, I probably would hate going to work, and it doesn't matter what it was. There are just some things that you're called to do. But what I'm talking about is this prevailing notion in our culture that unless work makes me happy and everything falls my way at work, then I can't work hard. Because that thinking leads to, to individuals always chasing the next opportunity, always saying, well, the grass is going to be greener over there. No, the Lord says to put your heart into your work right now. And if you try by his grace to put your heart into your work and you're still struggling with it, then maybe you need to seek counsel about a career change or a job change. When you sign up for a job, you're not signing in blood, at least not in my profession. And so there may come a time where you say, I'm going to switch. I'm going to, I'm going to move companies. That, that makes sense. There's wisdom that needs to be applied there. We work hard, though, regardless of what our work is. Second, we work hard and we put our hearts into our work as if the Lord Jesus were your boss. That's what the phrase, as the Lord and not to men, means bringing Jesus into our work reshapes our attitude. Because if our, if our service is for Jesus, that gives a whole new spin on how we go through our tasks, doesn't it? Uh, the idea of undercover bosses, I actually haven't seen much of this show. I just love the concept of undercover boss. That the CEO of some, you know, thousand uh, employee company could just show up at the entry level position and just kind of do things. And it's funny because they don't really even know how to do the, the basic jobs. And, you know, some plant managers bossing around telling them what to do. And then, oh, surprise, <laughs> you were bossing around your CEO. <gasps> if that, that worker knew that it was like the CEO or the CFO in front of them, they probably would have acted a little differently. And I'm afraid that as Christians, if we forget that Jesus is with us as our master, we would say, ooh, I probably should have behaved differently in the workplace too. Because Jesus is with us. Our work is for him. Knowing that Jesus is with us in our work and inspecting what we do really changes how we go about our day. Let me just give you a few ways how this might flesh out. How would working as to the Lord change your teaching? Or if you knew that, that Jesus was the third person in your client meeting. Or, or if you were out for a delivery and you knew that Christ was going to receive your delivery. Or he was the one at the end of the email reading your report. How would you behave? Would you be far more motivated to do your work with excellence if you knew that Jesus was reading your report? Would you be more diligent to be truthful and accurate in every part of your job if you knew that he was the one that you were going to have to explain the situation to? Would you be more careful to use language that pleases the Lord Jesus? Would you love the people around you more deeply? Would you show up on time consistently? Would you be careful not to overwork and keep the right family, right priority of family and church? This, this could go on. But you get the picture. If Christ is with you and your work is unto him, it transforms the way you work. And the, the kindness of God is he doesn't just say, I'm an authority and I'm going to enforce this. He promises a reward. We put our hearts into our work because Jesus gives eternal rewards, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. We have incentives in our work that motivate us. And Jesus taps into this humanness as, by giving us an incentive to work toward. And what is the incentive? The incentive is that at the end of all of this labor that may feel fruitless and exhausting and vain, at the end of it all for Christians is an eternal inheritance. 
And, and, and that's wonderful for us today. We say, oh, that's really nice. That's a good reminder. But put yourself back 2,000 years ago as a slave and try to understand what this would have said to you then. As a slave, you are property. You do not own property. You are not an heir because you're not a son or a daughter. You're a slave. When your master dies, you get passed on to the next person. You're in the will, not a recipient of the will, a beneficiary. These people had a bleak future where they lived the entirety of their lives, perhaps, without ever thinking about leaving something to their posterity, without receiving anything when their master died. And now this guy named Paul shows up and he says, if you serve the Lord Jesus Christ and you give your heart to him, you have an eternal inheritance of glory. What do you think that does for people who have nothing on this earth? It's the ultimate rags to riches story, isn't it? That, that, That these slaves who have nothing now are in eternity where it really matters, have everything. Here, where they never get a sniff of the table, they're the ones waiting at the table. They're the ones seated at the table in Christ in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2. What a dramatic motivation that would be for slaves. And yet I think that this command or this motive, this this reward, challenges us in a little bit of a different way. Unlike first century slaves, we have a lot of stuff in this life, don't we? We spend a lot of time crafting our will and investing in our 401k or our 403b. And we work together for our portfolio and we hire people to manage our portfolio. We spend a lot of time thinking about what we're going to do with all of our stuff here on earth. I used to use the illustration of have you ever seen a U-Haul truck attached to a hearse? And then I found a picture of it once and I was like, well, there goes that. But you can't take anything out of this life. And yet, our American dream is to accumulate stuff. And Ecclesiastes says, who are you leaving it for? You work all this time and you work all this labor to gain stuff, and then when you die, where does it go? Where does it go? And so if we would believe this reward, it doesn't give us hope of having something. It actually releases us from the grip of having everything we need now. Because what we have now, we actually don't really need. What we have then is what will be important. And in our work, we then serve the Lord Christ for our eternal reward. Remember Colossians 3, 1 through 4? We're not setting our affections on things below. We're setting our affections on things above. And that includes the things associated with our work and our labor Our work is necessary, but we work heartily for our eternal reward. Now, verses 22 and 23 have hinted at something. They've hinted that our work is ultimately for the Lord Jesus. And that's the next point. That's what Paul explicitly says in verses 24 and 25. And before we get to this, we have to look at the end of verse 24, because there's a really uh, challenging construction the way that Paul wrote this. In fact, This doesn't happen very often where all the English translations kind of smooth it out, but it actually obscures the meaning. So the end of verse 24 in the New King James has the the sentence continuing, you receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. So it's like that last statement is an explanation for why we work heartily, for you serve the Lord Christ, and that's true. It actually starts a new sentence there. There's no word for in the original. And so if we were to translate it literally, it would say something like this. Serve as slaves the Lord Christ, for the one doing wrong will be repaid for what he did, and there is no partiality. The third command in this passage is actually that verb, serve as slaves. So we have to third, view our work as service to Jesus. And there are three reasons for this in this sentence. The verb serve is the verb form of the word slave. That's why I translate it. That's my translation, by the way. Uh, That's why I translate it, serve as slaves, the Lord Jesus. 
Your translations probably just say, you serve the Lord Jesus. I wanted to bring out that nuance, that the service you are doing is a slave-like service. It's the verb form of the word doulos. You see, when we come to faith in Christ, we don't get free and become our own masters. We actually gain the most kind, benevolent master that has ever walked the earth. We are still under authority, but it's a renewed authority. It's under Jesus' authority. And what this verse does is clarify our authority priority. If you like rhymes, there it is. Authority priority. Who is my ultimate authority? Because sometimes there are two authorities in my life that contradict one another. Who do I obey in that situation? When your boss tells you to fudge the report, do you obey that authority or do you say I have a higher authority and his name is Jesus? When the government says you shall not gather for worship, do we say, okay, I guess we're not going to be Christians anymore? Or do we say, no, we have a higher authority and his name is Jesus? Jesus is our ultimate authority, which means that we obey our lower earthly authorities as long as they don't contradict or oppose Jesus. And I want to appeal to you, don't justify sin in the workplace. Don't justify it. Don't say, you know, if I just lie a little bit here or if I just fudge a little bit here, if I just cut this corner here, don't do it. Don't do it. It's easy to sin, but sin is always sin. And your ultimate aim is to honor Jesus more than it is to make an earthly authority happy. And you say, well, I might lose my job. Well, is it better to lose your job or to dishonor your treasure? Is it better to say to Jesus, you died for me and you own me, but I'm gonna resist you and I'm gonna obey this other person over here? It may come with hard consequences, but Christ is our ultimate master. We obey him. That's why our work is service to him. And now verse 25 gives us a second reason that our work is ultimately service to Jesus because not only does he reward faithful service, he repays unfaithful service. He who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. And so there's a motivation for reward on the one hand and there's also a warning of negative penalty here for wrongdoing. Though earthly authorities can't assess everything we do and can't see everything that we do in the workplace, the Lord Jesus does. And his assessment is perfect. And, and for those who are doing right, this is such an encouragement. And for those who are doing wrong, this is such a warning. And you say, well, Jesus repays unfaithful service, fine. Well, you should know something about his assessment. His performance review of you is perfect because he sees everything. He sees everything. There is no partiality. There is no biased, unjust, inaccurate assessments of your work. And, and human assessments, like end of the year reviews or performance evaluations, they're hard to do. Because you can't see everything that the employee has done. You can't, you know that your boss hasn't seen you work perhaps 98% of the time. And so there's only a certain level of, of accuracy perhaps. The, the best bosses, the best organizations try to make it as objective as possible. But in this life with our limitations, there will always be a subjectivity to that. There will always be a limit to how much and how accurate our assessment will be. Not so with Jesus. He knows perfectly. That's an encouragement for us and a challenge for us to view our, our work as service to the Lord Jesus. Now, the fourth guiding principle here is in chapter 4, verse 1. And this is one of those places where the chapter divisions are very unhelpful. Because the, whoever drew up the chapter divisions, like, sliced the household code and left off the last command. This verse, verse 1, is really the conclusion of the instructions given to the family and the household. What does it say in chapter 4, verse 1? Masters, give your bond servants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So the slaves had several verses of instruction. Again, that elevates them. Of all the people in the household, they're the ones that are encouraged the most. And now Paul falls back into that, that pattern of command and reason. So in this verse, there's a command and then there's a reason. 
And the command is to treat your subordinates fairly. Again, we're taking this out of the master-slave, putting it into our workforce. And the, the command is to treat them to be response, uh, excuse me, the command is to treat them fairly. And from these opening words, we see that those in authority have a responsibility to be just. Treat them with justice and fairness. And if you have authority in your occupation, you don't have the same level of control that a master had over its slave, his slave. But you do have biblical authority, and you ought to use that authority to grant justice and fairness to those who are your employees or those who are on your team. Because the biblical use of authority is using that power to look out for the interests of others. Sometimes our world thinks that authority in and of itself is evil and bad. Well, the reality of a God-created world is that there is authority. The problem is when we use it for selfish advancement. Biblical authority protects those who are under us and ensures that they're treated fairly. And so if you're in a position of authority, there are managers here. There are lead teachers, for example. There may be uh, uh, small business owners that have several employees. You have a responsibility to treat your employees justly and fairly. How do you do that? You do that by correcting wrong and discouraging those, and, and encouraging those who do right. You reward right behavior because if righteousness does not flourish, your good employees will get discouraged. Proverbs 17, 15, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Use your authority to do what's right and to promote righteousness. And remember, here's the reason you treat your subordinates fairly. Remember, that those who are in authority are not the ultimate authority. This is a sobering warning. You have a master in heaven. And you see, no matter who is in authority on earth, no matter if you're the president of the United States and there's no one above you in the free world, your authority is a derived authority. You're not ultimately over everything. There is no ultimate authority here on earth, and those who believe that they have it are corrupted by it. We are always under authority. And frankly, as those who lead and those who manage, we will do that best when we remember that we are under authority and that our master in heaven is watching over us. Now, as we step back from this passage, the instructions hopefully are fairly straightforward for us. Hopefully there's nothing earth-shattering of, oh, I should work hard or I should work as unto the Lord. And yet, there is something incredible here. Because what the Bible is doing is reorienting our work around Jesus. Our our work is not just something we do because we have to make a living. It's something we do for Jesus because he's our true master and he's watching everything. And so, to put it in the language of Colossians, the preeminence of Jesus motivates our work. We work for him. We work out of reverence for him. We work to be rewarded by him. He defines our work. And here's the big connection then. Since we work for the glory and praise of Jesus, then our work is now part of our worship. The preeminence of Christ transforms our work into worship. And that's one of the major contributions that the reformers made 500 years ago, that the the priest in the cathedral does not have holier work than the milkmaid in the barn. If you're an administrative assistant or the CEO, your work is unto the Lord. My job as a pastor is not more holy than yours as an accountant or a businessman or a painter. When we do all in the name of Jesus, as Colossians 3.17 says, even our work becomes worship because he's our ultimate master. And that's exhilarating. I I, I think that that is so encouraging because for every single Christian, we can work as unto the Lord and we can render him worship that's acceptable by engaging our work for his glory. But there's also something very sobering here for this reason. When Christians work just like the rest of the world, the rest of the world thinks that Christianity doesn't work. 
We serve the Lord Jesus. He is unseen, though he is our master. And when we work poorly, what do people assume? Our coworkers and our customers will not see Jesus negotiate a settlement. They will not see Jesus managing a department. They will not see Jesus handling a classroom, but they will see us as his followers doing these very things. They will see the body of Jesus working here on earth. And if we work just like everyone else, half-hearted, cutting corners, only when people are watching for the financial gain that we can have, if we work just like everyone else, then those who watch us will conclude that knowing Jesus will make no difference. And in this way, our work becomes a testimony. No one is probably gonna be won to Christ by watching you on the, on the industry line. But there should be something qualitatively different about the way we work. And in our world, as it crumbles around us, we should start sticking out like sore thumbs in the workforce. Many of you will get up tomorrow morning and you'll drive to work. Others of you are retired, which as I joked earlier, means that you're busier than ever. Some of you have unpaid work, like being a stay-at-home mom. Or maybe you're paying other people to work, which is what you do in college, you pay other people to work hard. But no matter what your work happens to be, this passage calls us to view our work as worship. So let's enter these spaces with a transformed perspective of our work for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me and ask the Lord's help for this? Father, we, we appeal to you to make our work less vain and less meaningless as we engage it for your glory, doing all in the name of Jesus. Help us as Christians to obey our authorities, to work hard with integrity, to do it as unto the Lord, to put our hearts into it, and for those of us who are in authority, to exercise that authority graciously, remembering that we have a master in heaven who watches over us. Help our Christian testimony to be strengthened and furthered by the way that we work, and give us grace, we pray, to do this. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make Him known. May God bless you as you follow Him.